0: Live from the Great White North, this is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Bellinger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is August 19th. I am Braden Dennis, joined by my co-host, as always, Simon Bellanger from our nation's capital, Ottawa. Today we have a jam-packed episode. We got four large topics to discuss. So we'll both be going on a couple monologues and then comparing notes. Simon is on vacation today, still doing the podcast. And you know it's going to be a good episode because he always has a jump in his step when he is on vacation. So how are you feeling today, Simon?
1: Yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm not sure I would call that a vacation. It's uh, gonna do yard work, but I am excited to record this one. Uh, A lot of these were inspired by uh, some of our listeners, just some questions we got on Twitter. So excited to to give our take for those.
0: Yeah, how many bags of sod did you have to deliver to the backyard?
1: Uh, We're getting them uh, delivered tomorrow. It's actually three and a half uh, pallets that we're getting delivered. (laughs) Three and (laughs) a half pallets. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah, so uh, lots of stretching beforehand and then get getting to work on uh, 40 degrees Celsius weather with the uh, humidity tomorrow. Oh,
0: goodness. Okay, so if you're in Ottawa, hit up Simon on, on Twitter if you're going to help him with some uh, some yard work. All right, first topic of the day. I This just came out of pure curiosity because I always hear, you know, mutual fund managers underperform the market 80% of the time. That's been the stat that gets thrown around all the time. So I figured, well, is that true still? Does that still happen? And I went to S&P Global, which is a very legit source. This is the same Standard & Poor's company that makes the S&P 500 index. And I didn't realize that they do this, which funds are over, like outperforming the market, which ones are underperforming, and... Just some general stats about the industry, which is really cool to poke around the website's cool. So that is at S&P Global's website. So over the last five years, 98.63% of Canadian large cap funds underperformed the S&P TSX composite. Only 1.37% of funds outperformed the S&P TSX. And that's just Canadian companies on the TSX. So that is that is shocking. So and then in the US as well, over the last five years, large cap fund managers for mutual funds, 75.27% underperformed, meaning less than 25% of fund managers outperformed the market. And I figured, like, how is this possible? And not to mention, they're charging, you know, maybe one and a half, all the way up to two and a half percent. On these mutual fund fees, and they're higher in Canada than anywhere else in the world, which is unfortunate. You're, you're, you're seeing that two and a half percent here in Canada still to this day in 2021, um, which is disappointing. So why is this, right? Like, how do we peg a reason to why these professional mutual fund managers are underperforming the index? Because it is their job by nature to probably outperform it. Um, now I do want to provide some sort of caveat that some of these fund managers, their goal is not to beat the market. It might be like a dividend strategy and income strategy, like a capital preservation strategy, and they probably get thrown in here, but still we're talking about only 1.3% 7% of large cap funds outperforming. So it is apples to apples because they're large cap compared to the TSX composite. All right, so why is this? This is my three very unofficial reasons of why I think this is, just just jotting them down I racked my brain. I believe the three most important things that is happening, especially in Canada, of why they're underperforming. One, I think that these fund managers are underweight technology. Straight up, I think that they are underweight technology, especially when the index, you know, all the monster returns have come from like... The TSX technology information technology capped index, which is like Shopify, Constellation Software, CGI, those companies, they've done extremely well. Uh, Number two, I think that they trade too much. This isn't a secret. You know, here, Simon and I, we hardly make like we are sloths when it comes to investing. We don't make a lot of moves. We don't panic. We move very lethargically. We don't trade a lot, and that is our biggest advantage. Uh, number three, these fund managers have incentives around short-term performance. Right, they are measured quarterly, maybe monthly. And if you're an individual investor, you are freed from that. If you have a month of underperformance and some stock you own is getting crushed, but you, you but you love it, you like it even more you know, you liked it at 30 bucks, but you love it at 20 bucks, you're going to buy some more. That fund manager might cut it loose at 25 before it even got to 20, which was when it was a really good buying opportunity because they're worried of getting crushed in the short term. Now these incentives matter a lot. They matter so much. And I think that might, that might be the most important one. So before I move on to the next, uh, section of of where I'm going with this. I mean, do you have any other reasons of why you think fund managers have like a structural disadvantage? I mean, these are smart people. They are not they are not dumb. I know some of the smartest people are fund managers.
1: Yeah, I think there's uh you touched on most of them, I think. For the first one, uh for me would be also they may have certain mandates like you mentioned early on, so they may have a a healthcare focus or a dividend kind of mandate. It really depends on the type of of the fund and their incentives as well. You're totally right because if you even take a mutual fund that's targeting retail investors like you and I and all our listeners, well, most people that are retail and going into mutual fund will tend to look at the past performance and specifically the last year and how it did. And if it did not perform well, not even thinking comparing to the index, because most people don't even look at that, uh, but if it hasn't performed well, a lot of people will withdraw the money from that mutual fund and go somewhere else. So there could be outflows coming from the fund, and obviously that will affect uh in a big way the fund manager. Eventually, if there's too many outflows, they could just wrap up the fund, right? So that's probably my two biggest reasons.
0: Yeah, good point. The the mandates and the incentives. Around that can be structurally disadvantageous. Um, so yeah, this is not a, a section on fund managers are stupid. they don't know what they're doing. no they're the, they're some of the smartest people on the street. Uh, it's just the two percent management expense ratio and the structural disadvantages of the fund just make it not ideal. In 2021, when so many different options are available with technology now, you just really don't need to be in mutual funds anymore. Um, And that's just the truth. And that's my opinion. Uh, Take it as what you want. All right. So where I'm going with this is those reasons why I think that they've underperformed and, and why I think as individual investors like myself, like Simon, like yourself listening on the podcast is you have the complete opposite. And you have all these advantages to being able to move the money in the way you want. So I looked and I compared my Canadian portfolio, which is a model portfolio on Stratosphere Investing that's been around since 2016. Um, it is the the actual positions that I invest in with my own money. So the model portfolios on on Stratosphere, I invest in these names to a T, um, and then I compared the U.S. one as well. So Since 2016, when it started on the Canadian side, I outperformed the market four out of five years, and it represented 23% outperformance over five years. And then the exact same story with the US portfolio, it outperformed the market 22% last year alone. Uh, Now, this is not me to just boast here and say like, hey, I, I can crush the market, uh There's lots of things that go into that. But where I'm going with this is there are so many different companies inside the index. And my recommendations in terms of how people should manage their portfolio are the following. Only buy quality businesses. Op- be opportunistic on market drawdowns. Don't sell winners. Think in years or decades, not quarters. And use a quant model. Like I use the stratosphere quant model that's available for, for members. It takes the emotions out of out of investing. It finds growth at a reasonable price. It looks at things like business quality, network effects, secular trends, management. So the, the, the takeaway here is the fund managers have all the opposite things going for them that I just mentioned. They sell winners. They're not opportunistic on market drawdowns because they're scared. They don't want to lose clients. Uh they think in quarters, not years. Um, and so those things just don't justify a two percent management fee. So you can you can do so much better um than that option, than that product. And those those are these are the reasons why I think that's the case.
1: Yeah, yeah, well put. Um and like I said, there's no to me. If people want to pick stocks like you just mentioned or owning index funds, that's perfectly fine. And just to add what you were saying, I remember hearing that the fund managers who do beat the index for a five-year period, I think very few of them will beat the index the following five-year period of the ones that did so you have to keep that in mind as well so you may have a good fund manager for a shorter period of time and i know five years for some people is a lot but in investing world to me it's not that long but when you keep looking further out then it's even less likely that they keep beating that index so so something to keep in mind and you add in those fees i was talking with a buddy of mine and he was paying i think 2.85 percent in fees uh for the mutual fund he was in. So yeah, and that, that's it,
0: like three thousand dollars on a hundred thousand dollar portfolio.
1: Or every thirty
0: year. every year. Or thirty thousand dollars <laughs> on a one million dollar portfolio. You said two point eight five. So we'll call call twenty eight thousand yeah. five hundred a year. Like thirty grand, like a new car worth of fees for someone to probably underperform the market. And I think you know, I, I'm I'm out here beating the market, but if you if you had me sitting in the chair in some shiny corner office and told me that I need to please clients on a monthly or quarterly basis, oh god, I I, I would be so set up for failure and probably not beat the market anyways
1: yeah yeah and I think the way that some of these funds get away with it is they I think they're called segregated fund it's a type of mutual fund I may have to term off a little bit but what they do is when someone invests with them they'll say okay this portion of your investment is like guaranteed capital so you can always get that back if the markets go completely down but in exchange they usually charge very high fees and when you do the math, the calculation over long periods of time, I mean, it doesn't really make sense that original, you know, guaranteed capital three, four, five, six years out. I mean, the market could go down 50 percent and you'd still have more than that initial capital investment. Right. So um, I think a lot of them get away with that and that fear of people that they have that backstop. As a guaranteed amount I've seen those type of funds more than once and when you crunched a number over long periods of time it just doesn't make sense I mean if you need a safety net just put that in an emergency fund and the rest just invested in something low fee Um, it's not worth it to our next subject this was inspired by uh, one of a question I got on Twitter and I'm totally sorry I don't have the name in front of me but I'm sure you'll recognize yourself so it's about Covered call ETFs. So he wanted to know what they were. Um, he wasn't understanding them, and I'll break it down for you guys. So these type of funds buy companies, then they sell call options. Therefore, they generate premiums and more yield. So before I go into detail, um, I'll just do a bit of a refresher on what a call option is. So we had an earlier episode on that, uh, so you can always go back. I can't remember which episode it was, but I'll add it to uh, the show notes if you want a refresher on what the options are. So call option gives the buyer of the call option the right, but not the obligation to buy a certain stock at a predetermined price, which is called the strike price. The call option will expire after a certain amount of time. So there, are, uh, there is always a time component and a limit to the, uh, to the call option contract. In exchange for that, the buyer of the call option will pay a premium to the seller of the call option for that right. If the buyer exercises the option before its expiry date, the seller has no choice but to sell him the shares at that predetermined price. And usually, well, they will be done in lots of 100. So one contract means uh, if it's exercised, it equals 100 shares. So people, I will, um, so you understand this with a concrete example. Say Microsoft, and I know the prices are not really what they're trading at right now, so bear with me. Say Microsoft is trading at 190 a share. Braden has hundred shares and wants to sell me a call option because he's not sure about Microsoft and wouldn't mind selling his shares if they got up to $200 a share. So he sells me a covered call option because he owns the share and I decide to take him up on it because I'm bullish on Microsoft. We decide that the strike price is $200 a share and is good for a period of six months. In exchange for that I give him a premium of $3 per share for a total of $300 this means that I can buy a hundred shares of Microsoft at any time in the next six months for $200 each from Braden so obviously there are several outcomes here for both parties Uh, I won't go into detail because uh, like I said we did a previous episode on that but to go back to our covered call ETF The premium they receive, so in that same example, the the premium Braden would have received, will end up boosting the distribution of the fund and therefore increasing the yield it will generate. That's why you see a lot of these type of funds focusing on dividend stocks, but it's not specific to just dividend stocks. And I'll give an example later on. So the pros of a covered call ETF. They'll tend to be lower vol- volatility than a comparable ETF that is not a covered call. Uh, this is because the premium collected ends up lowering the downside if there's a market downturn. They will perform better in a bear market than a similar ETF because of the premiums that are collected. And they can generate pretty good yield with the premiums collected. And we're talking here like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12% in terms of yield there are some cons so the cons of a covered call ETF they tend to have higher fees because of the increased trading those call option there obviously there's a cost to trade those which also requires more active management from the fund managers it caps the fund upside because the fund is forced to sell equities when they perform well so if I go back to that example with Braden uh, the $200 a share for Microsoft. So if Microsoft within that six month period goes up to $250 a share, well, I'll probably call up Brayden and say, hey buddy, I wanna buy those uh, shares of Microsoft at $200 a share. Obviously if it goes down to 150, I'll never exercise my option and he just collects the premium and he's very happy about it. But it definitely caps your upside because of that specific situation. And like I mentioned, uh, they do not perform well in a bull market, just like they will perform a bit better in a, bar, a bear market. So an example of this is the Global X NASDAQ 100 Covered Call ETF. It's uh, ticker QYLD, and we'll compare it to the QQQ, which is the Invesco QQQ. Both follow the NASDAQ 100, so it's the same index that they actually follow, but the QYLD is a covered call variety. So I did a little table here that I'll go through. So the QILD um, over the past five and one years. So the past year, QILD is up 17% and 72% over the past five years compared to the QQQ, which is up 36% in the past year and five years, 227%. And that's because we've been in an overall bull market and you're seeing that cap upside right there. The dividend amount is uh, 0.22 for QILD. It's paid monthly and it generates a yield of 11.6%. Whereas QQQ is 0.39 per share for a dividend amount that's paid quarterly and it's a yield of roughly 0.40% because the shares are way higher uh, for the QQQ. In terms of fees, the QILD, so the covered call ETF, 0.60% and QQQ, 0.20%. So you're seeing exactly the pros and cons right there. I thought these this was a really good example just to show the difference because they track the same index. They're just one's a covered call and one isn't. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what a covered call is. Any comments on that, Brayden?
0: Well, I have a couple comments. My first takeaway here is that There is a juicy dividend yield that you might be very attracted to, of over 10% from this covered calls. And you go, this is an absolute no brainer. And you still got absolutely smoked by the index. You know, the NASDAQ 100 over the last five years has been incredible, a 227% increase. And that's not normal in five years, but. Look at the difference. I mean, even after you collected your yield, you just lost straight up to the index and doing doing nothing is is just owning the index, right? And it goes back to the the mutual fund conversation is why do that when instruments like just owning the index for 0.05% exists? Like why do anything else other than own great companies if you want to own individual stocks? But it's a good, it's a good overview, and and thanks for pointing out that these ETFs' performance. I think that's, I that kind of just says it all, right? Because I've been investing for like ten years now, and I've never traded an option. I've never owned one of these special ETFs. I know all about them. I know all how all these things work, and I'd rather just own good companies for the long term. So thanks for pointing this out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I learned something. I thought they were pretty much only dividend companies that they would do covered calls with. So I was kind of surprised when I saw the the NASDAQ 100. Um, I mean, I guess they're the only saving grace and you can take it with a grain of salt. I guess if you're retired and you're really looking for that income. There's income. um, Yeah, there's definitely income. We can't, you know, you, you can't, you can't say you know you have to agree with that there is definitely a lot of income related to these uh, covered call ETF so if that's really something you're looking at but if you're really far out from needing the money or from retirement um i mean the performance is it got shattered by the non covered call ETF i mean that's <laughs> yeah. that's the only way to put it yeah it did but you i mean yeah you're buying this for the income
0: so yeah. you got your income so if if if, if you're seeking income then That's a pretty good strategy, actually. It's kind of cool. All right, let's move on. So we got lots to talk about. I'm going to go through a few Canadian professional services businesses. uh, And ones that I think are good. I like these companies. So I'm going to go through them here. We got one, two, three, four. Yeah, we got four companies. So I'll try to rifle through these. First one, First Service, ticker f SV. And by the way, these all trade on the TSX. Some of them are dual listed, like First Service is also FSV on a U.S. exchange. But uh, so First Service splits their business into two. First Service Residential is North America's largest manager of residential communities. It manages 8,500 properties, and which equates to 1.7 million units, which is very impressive. And then first service brands is them rolling up property services um which are primarily franchise type businesses and and they have over fourteen hundred franchisees uh so some of those brands people might recognize are Paul davis first on site california closets serta Pro painters uh floor coverings I think they have college college uh oh, what is it College Pro Painters. That's it, right? Is it really? Oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, I've seen those that? around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't yeah. seen it in a while, but like I remember, they always just try to recruit. Pre-pandemic,
1: you. I've seen that. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. The name has escaped me. It's also part of the brand. So they're a roll-up company, right? They buy these home services businesses, uh, and when I say home services, this is commercial contracts for the most part, but also some direct-to-consumer contracts. So. Uh, it's been a hell of a stock. Let's not get ourselves. They have been compounding free cash flow at about 12% over the last 10 years and earnings per share compounded at over 30% compounding a growth rate over the last 10 years. Uh, I know some really smart people that love this name. I think it's a little expensive here, but it is a good company and they're doing all the right things to d- deliver shareholder returns. So It's been a good story so far here in Canada, and uh, I I like the business moving forward. All right, Stantec. Stantec is a global engineering firm. It is ticker STN on the TSX. They include, their services are engineering, architecture, interior design, landscaping, surveying, environmental sciences, project management, and project economics. So this is a multidisciplinary engineering firm, but they do mostly do civil eng. Uh, It's been a great compounder. It's tripled over the last three years. It doesn't grow crazy fast, but it does grow nicely over time. Uh, Pays a nice dividend, spins off tons of free cash. Um, With these services businesses, right? they produce gobs of cash because the business is so capital light in a way. I do like WSP more. Uh, but I'd be happy to own Stantec in my portfolio. So WSP is the the larger engineering firm, which trades on the TSX. They deploy more capital in terms of acquisitions. Uh, I just like their vision a little bit better, but Stantec I'd be happy to own as well. These companies that just provide services in things like engineering and construction, which is very capital-intensive work, they just provide services and so they're in that like capital light free cash flowing side of the value equation. And I like that a lot. All right, CGI, which is ticker G-I-B, CGI is a global IT consulting, outsourcing and system integration firm. They have over 400 offices, which seems kind of nuts when I saw that 400 offices, it seems like a lot. But again, it's a service, professional service businesses, and, uh, you know, they're business is their employee base. They have 77,000 employees. Um, So they have long-term contracts, strong brand, uh, a partnership ecosystem, a lot of IP, and um, they deliver in-house value to clients uh, through consulting and outsourcing engagements. What I just read was from the Stratosphere Investment Thesis on it. You can see it. Uh, It's been part of the model for quite some time, CGI, so you can read that. They grow the top line, they grow the dividend, they grow earnings, and they buy back a lot of stock. So I graphed out on the report how much they've been buying back stock. It's pretty impressive. The top line growth is nothing to uh, you know write home about, but free cash flow per share and earnings per share grows really fast. Growth on the top line is lumpy because they make acquisitions. So it's a classic roll-up story. They acquire, service companies, spin off, repeat. And there's going to be a theme here. All these companies... They're just consolidating a very fragmented market. All right, last one, Softchoice, ticker F, no, sorry, ticker S, F, T, C. Softchoice is an IT services company. They are known for their world-class sales force out of Toronto. I know a bunch of people that work there. They sell IT hardware and software services. They do everything. They can do everything from... You know, Simon comes over and says, Hey, we need 500 laptops. They'll sell you the 500 laptops and the Microsoft Enterprise solution to set you up on their Microsoft Cloud. But then they'll also do like a cloud migration from old to new tech through their services segment. And the business has changed a lot. Like the, it was like low single digits on revenue for how much they were doing the professional services. This is climbing up and up and up as they, they shift the business to a services business because the margins are way better. So on the services side, it means moving clients to the cloud, helping them build the workplace of tomorrow, and enabling them to make smart decisions about their tech portfolio. It is a new IPO. Um, I know people that work there that were buying stock options for like a buck. And the stock IPO'd at 20 bucks in May. And it's up 60%. It even hit 40 bucks, uh, but it's pulled back over the last week. So it, this has been a great IPO on the TSX so far. It's an interesting business as they shift the model to a IT consulting and professional service business with their specialty being in the cloud. Um, I think they're set up for success.
1: Yeah, I mean uh in terms of IPO, I feel like you really have to to be pretty bad this year to not have a successful IPO.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh you could find some exceptions to the rule. Oh, and yeah. uh yeah. it it's they're they're executing on this new strategy, right? And uh, you know, I'd be I'd be honestly happy to own all four of them. I own uh none of them. I'm looking at the list. I own none of them. Uh, But they are good companies. I like the services business. It's sticky. The margins are good. And uh, it's capital light.
1: Uh, That's a good, uh, very interesting companies. I'll be honest. Most of them I wasn't too familiar with. uh, But something to add to my watch list. Um, So our last segment here again, uh, this was something that came from a question on Twitter from Hugo, um, which he asked me that he was missing out on some opportunities because he's waiting until he has $2,500 um, to invest because he pays a $6.95 fee with his online broker for each transaction. Oh, so he's, he's
0: using C- uh, CIBC Investor's Edge.
1: No, he's, he's using a Quebec, uh, I think it's um, oh. the Case uh, Populaire.
0: They oh, have, true. Uh, yeah.
1: I thought yeah, Investor's so. Edge
0: was the only one at six ninety five. dollars no, but no, go on, no, I'm hijacking I, your story here.
1: Yeah, it's all good. Nice try though. <laughs> um and because his broker charges that, he wants to minimize the trading fee uh, for each transaction. So he added that he finds it hard to DCA because he has to wait until that amount, which equals to about zero point two eight percent of the total transaction cost. And I mean, I love that you go is thinking about fees because obviously we harp on fees all the time. But I'll break down um, the the problem over here just with some examples and some numbers and what I personally do. Um, and it's really important to, to keep in mind that when you buy a stock, it's a one-time fee. It's not a reoccurring fee like we just talked about a mutual fund, which they'll charge you 1%, 2 or 3%. That happens every year. So that really can have a really devastated compounding effect over the long term. So keeping in mind that Brayden and I tend to buy and hold. So that transaction fee is essentially, like I said, a one-time fee. Obviously, you'll get a fee when you sell. But again, it's different from that that mutual fund that's charging you that 2% or whatever. For me personally, I have a 1% rule for transaction costs. It's a little bit arbitrary, but that's the rule I kind of gave myself. That's the minimum amount I'll use for my DCA. To illustrate that i used an example of paying one percent versus 0.5 percent of the transaction cost and the difference that i can do over a 20-year period so i used a five dollar fee because i do pay that with QuestRade, but you could do the same kind of calculation to determine what makes sense for you and i know some people may not have a lot of money to invest at once so as long as you do the calculation and you understand the impacts long term i think that's what counts here so in the first scenario, I'm investing twice at $500 with each transaction. So each $500, it costs me $5. So the total I pay for that two $500 transaction is $1,000 and $10. And my total invested is $1,000 because the $1,010, 10, that 10 is the two-time fee that I pay. So over 20 years at 8% compounded uh, growth rate annually, it gives me $4,660 and change. In the scenario two, I do one transaction, one transaction at $1,005. And that cost me a $5 fee the reason I put a thousand and five is because I only have that one five dollar fee I want to kind of show that thousand dollars and ten so the total paid is like I said a thousand dollars and ten and the total invested is a thousand and five dollars so I have five dollars invested more because I only occurred that fee once over 20 years at eight percent it's 4684 and that's compared i'll say it again to 4660 uh, with the previous approach so we see there's only a difference of 24 dollar over a 20-year period so it's not a huge difference and you really have to determine what makes sense for you in the end you can just do that same exercise use a compound income calculator and calculate the different outcomes of a smaller amount invested and paying a higher overall one time transaction cost versus a bigger amount with a smaller transaction cost because of course you'll have if you invest $100 at a time and you pay $5 each time then obviously when you invest 1000 you'll have uh, paid a um, hundred dollars worth of uh, fifty dollars worth of fees. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, it's always it, it's not an easy decision to take, but at the end of the day, the impact should not be too big because it is a one-time cost, and that's the the most important thing to remember here. Um, Brayden, do you have a rule for you in terms of the the percentage for transaction costs for you? I have a rule where I don't do anything less than five hundred bucks. Yeah, just because I don't don't want it to
0: be more than one percent. So if yeah, five bucks on Quest Trade. So yeah, five hundred bucks is is my hard minimum.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, I think one point five two percent of transaction costs, depending how much you can invest. Because for me and you, I think it doesn't take us too long to have five hundred dollars to invest. So you have to keep that in mind. You want to balance it with not having too high cost but also being able to dollar cost average on a pretty regular basis Um, i would say anything above two percent starts being pretty high but under that i think that's pretty reasonable so if you pay five dollars each time you could go as low as 250 um i think that would be fine obviously you know it'll impact your returns a little bit over a long period of time but it shouldn't be too big and is that impact going to outweigh the the fact that you're waiting a longer period of time so it's always creating that balance
0: yeah look my stance here is don't sweat the small stuff and this is it's great that you're thinking about fees and it's important to think about fees that's why i'm saying like don't you know, buy one share of something and, you know, your fee costs like 20% of the transaction. Now that that's the extreme case, but anything over 500 bucks, you know, like don't sweat the small stuff because we were just talking about fees when man going through a mutual fund fee on a hundred thousand dollar portfolio will cost you $2,500 $2500 with a 2.5% mutual fund fee. So we're talking about $2500 in fees for someone who's probably going to underperform the market. Don't sweat the the 5 bucks or the the 10 bucks if you're using one of the big banks. Don't sweat the small stuff. And hey, maybe Maybe there's a silver lining here, and I think about this sometimes as as the brokers keep fighting for lower and lower fees. In the U.S., they're like $0 now. Is If there's just that little bit of fee, that little bit of stop, wait, and think, should I make this move? Should I panic sell this stock that's down 5% today? Just having that little bit of fee might actually be a good thing uh to make you stop and think and anytime you're you're on your brokerage account and you're thinking about making a trade and you're you're just not sure like should I do it? Should I panic sell this company? It's almost always a good idea to take a couple deep breaths, close down your brokerage account, check it in tomorrow, and that'll that'll keep you from doing some knee-jerk reactions with buying and selling stocks because if you trade too much you'll just have a bad time like trading too much is not a good investment strategy like Simon and I I said we would I would describe myself as a sloth if I was an animal as an investor um yeah so that's my take on that now look we talked a lot about fees today if you hit your million dollar goal if you hit that million dollar investment portfolio and you're paying for active management. Let's say it's only one and a half percent mutual fund. Now that's pretty standard. You say one one and a half percent. Though by the way, they'll tack on some performance as well. They'll tack on some backloaded performance fees if they do uh, beat the market. So, but let's say they don't do some performance fees. You're looking at fifteen thousand dollars at one and a half percent. Fifteen every year. thousand every year. In fees. Now, like, that's why I say don't sweat the small stuff. It's a five bucks, ten bucks here trading. As long as you're not trading too much, you are doing so good. Like you're doing so great. Like I can't express how much if you even just listen to this podcast, managing your own portfolio, like seriously, as cliche as it sounds, like pat yourself on the back. You're doing so good. I don't- most people aren't doing this. Most people truly aren't doing this. So, uh, I think that's a good way to end it. Other than the fact that a Stratosphere membership costs one hundred and eighty dollars per year, compared to that to fifteen thousand, that seems like a pretty good deal. Simon, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. All right, guys. Or if you co-host a podcast, you get it for free. That's it. yeah,
0: yeah. You got the the free <laughs> membership. I don't know. Simon's doing pretty well on the house he just bought. What do you guys think? I should, I should start charging him. Yeah, charge me double. I'm going to charge you <laughs> double. I'm going to charge you $15,000. right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you are enjoying the two episodes per week that we're pumping out. We're having a good time doing it. Uh, now's a good time also to shout out that we have a new website. We have a new website. I did it as a little side project. It did launch... It's live today. The URL is thecanadianinvestorpodcast.com. That is thecanadianinvestorpodcast.com. You'll see links to all the episodes, all the show notes, all of uh, links to Stratosphere, for instance, so I don't have to keep pumping getstockmarket.com. Maybe I'll redirect that to uh, thecanadianinvestorpodcast.com now. And uh, there's also a link there to buy Simon and I coffee if you really feel like it. And uh, it is not expected, by the way, guys. Like It's really just for the most people who have been listening for a long time who want to support us, support our work. But uh, if you are just listening to this show, you are doing more than enough to support it. Thank you so much. See you next week.
1: The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Brayden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.